Do you know what the most repeated command is in the Bible? It's not go to church. It's not read your Bible. It's not stop sinning. The command given the most times in Scripture is actually quite simple. It's the command, fear not. It's given in all sorts of places for all sorts of reasons. Do not be afraid. Fear not. What does that say about us? What does that say about God? That we need to hear that command over and over and over again. Do not be afraid. First off, it says we spend a lot of our time living in fear. For honest, we're fearful people. We worry, we get anxious, we lose sleep, we panic, we overthink, we avoid, we hide, we run away. Fear is not usually jumping and screaming in a moment of terror, but it's often the subtle anxiety deep in our hearts. We are fearful people. I don't care how tough you may think you are, how long you've lived and what you've lived through. We are not all that different from the little kid who wants a nightlight because he's afraid of the dark. Except we learn as we get older, there are things in life much scarier than the dark. So as a result, we make many of our life decisions based on fear. Fear controls us. It makes us do things we said we would never do, and it makes us miss out on things we once dreamed of. Our fears are only limited by our imaginations. Think of all the things we fear. We fear loss, loss of control, loss of possessions, loss of loved ones, loss of respect, loss of career, loss of health. We fear rejection. We fear failure. We fear change. We fear what we don't know and we fear what we do know but refuse to acknowledge. We fear uncertainty, what lurks around the corner, what domino will fall next. We, we fear the worst case scenario that we just made up in our heads. We fear perhaps greatest of all, people. We fear their judgment or their disapproval. We fear embarrassment, not being smart enough or good enough. We fear being hurt or hurting someone else. We fear being exposed, being found out. We fear being left alone. And we fear death. Truth is, we all fear, which is why the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. We need to hear it often. That's why God says it so often. But he also says it so often because he wants us to conquer it. He wants us to live not by fear, but by faith. He wants us to fear him alone and be freed from the shackles of every other fear. So that is our Advent theme this year. It's do not be afraid. And you might be thinking, hmm, what does that have to do with Christmas? I thought Christmas is all peace and joy and love and cheer and it's carols and cookies and chestnuts roasting on an open fire. That's the cultural Christmas, which is not a bad thing. We, we love that. We celebrate. It's a lot of fun with family and friends. I, I personally love all the traditions and the movies and the songs, and you know, it's so fun to see my kids, how excited they are about everything. It's a great time of year. But we need to know the biblical Christmas is quite different. The Christmas story in the Bible is a bit messy and real. There is great joy and peace that comes from it, but the story we enter into in the first century has a setting filled with fear which is why we see three times in the first two chapters of Luke that most often repeated command, do not be afraid. 
So this Advent season, we're going to look at the real story of Christmas. And we're going to take an honest look at the fearful context in which Jesus entered the world. And most importantly, what it means for us today, living in our own fearful times. We're going to spend these next four weeks in the Gospel of Luke, and then we'll actually continue Luke in the new year and beyond. But it's significant that Luke chose to begin his Jesus story at the very beginning. He begins with a miraculous birth, but it's not the birth of Jesus. No, Luke starts his true documented account with the birth of someone who came right before Jesus. And this sets up everything else to come. So let's look at Luke chapter 1 in our first instance of do not be afraid. Luke chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here we're introduced to the first big characters in this story. We have Zechariah and Elizabeth who are presented here as a model Jewish couple. Zechariah is a priest, and Elizabeth comes from priestly lineage herself, being from the line of Aaron. They were both righteous before God. They obeyed the commands and the laws. They were good people who loved the Lord and would have been highly respected, except for one challenge they faced. They were childless. Not only were they childless, they were too old at this point to have children. we got to understand here how tragic this would have been for Zechariah and Elizabeth Infertility is one of the most difficult situations I've watched friends and family members go through. And in first century Judaism, to be childless brought great shame. It was sometimes viewed incorrectly as God's judgment upon someone, especially being of a priestly lineage where having a son would have been so important to your legacy. But we learn here that Zechariah and Elizabeth are not being punished for something. Rather, God is setting up their situation to do something unexpected. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. This was a routine moment in Jewish life for everyone except Zechariah. Uh, every day, a priest would perform the offerings and burn incense, and the people would, you know, be outside praying, and the incense would represent their prayers going up before God. But what made this a huge moment for Zechariah was that this opportunity to be the one to go in and burn the incense was very rare. As a priest, your division only served at the temple two separate weeks of the year. And during those weeks, the one to offer the incense each day was chosen by lot. And the one who was chosen by Lot was only selected one time in his entire life. There were about 18,000 priests that served at the temple throughout the year. So here is Zechariah's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is the highlight of his career and spiritual life. You can just imagine how he was probably a little nervous, probably a bit excited, just you know, really wanted to focus on doing a good job. And watch what God springs on him. Verses 11 through 17. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. 
And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Uh, so often when we read the Bible, we just like normalize this stuff. And we, we kind of shrug like, okay, yeah, an angel, of course, it's the Bible, right? Like it was totally normal in the Bible times for people to just see angels around everywhere. Like, no, this is unbelievable. This is completely unexpected. Can, can you just imagine seeing an angel in person? Angels in the Bible are not described as little babies with halos and wings. All right? They're often described as terrifying warriors. Zechariah, while already nervous about the biggest moment of his career, is stunned and terrified. And then the angel speaks. He tells Zechariah that he and Elizabeth's prayers will be answered. Their deepest longing for a child is going to come true. That in itself would be an amazing story. But it's who this child will be that just takes it right over the top. This will not be in the ordinary child, but everything the angel says here is steeped in Old Testament prophecy. First off, God often sent an unexpected child to a barren couple in the Old Testament when he was going to do something big. We see that with Isaac, Samuel, Samson. That would have been the first connection in the mind of Jewish readers. We also see that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. That was also unexpected since at this time, believers were not continuously filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit was reserved for prophets. That brings us to the last big thing, the biggest thing of all we learn about this miracle child. It's that he will prepare the people. Prepare them for what? For God's salvation. That right there is the whole point of Luke's gospel. It's that God is bringing salvation to the world. And this child, Zechariah and Elizabeth's unexpected child, John, is given the task to go before God and get the people ready. And this way he will go in the power and spirit of Elijah, which is more Old Testament prophecy language. So Zechariah, as a priest and a devout man of God, he would have had alarm bells ringing in his head. He would have heard all this language and understood what was taking place, that he and his wife were being thrust into the center of God's great story, that they were going to get to play a role in God saving his people. And here's how Zechariah responds, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Think about it, this significant, once-in-a-lifetime moment. And Zechariah doubts. To be honest, it's, it's understandable from a human perspective. I mean, the idea of having a child in old age, it's impossible. Seeing an angel in person, that hadn't happened in centuries. Having your son become the forerunner of the Messiah, no way. So Zechariah doubts. And in this moment, he reflects the heart of the entire Jewish nation. Now, let's remember the context of this time for Israel. 
the Old Testament has concluded. All those amazing things that happened from Genesis to Malachi, from creation to the Exodus, to the prophets, to the exile, to the return. You have all this incredible history of God's working. All these great promises and prophecies. And then 400 years of radio silence between the two Testaments. Generations went by. And God was quiet. From a political standpoint, things had gotten worse. The Romans had taken control of Israel. They'd placed Herod as a puppet king to instill fear in the Jews and keep them in line. So Zechariah is really expressing what everybody felt at this time. Doubt. The people hadn't forsaken God. They're still outside praying. There's some who have hope. But overall, we'll see this throughout Jesus' ministry. They have very little faith. And that's the situation in which God chooses to step into with the greatest news of all, that salvation has come to you today. But Zechariah wants a sign, and a sign he will get. Look at verses 19 through 25. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The angel gives Zechariah a little bit of a a listen here, bud. Right? He says, I'm Gabriel, in case you didn't know. I'm like the angel of angels. I stand in God's presence. And he gives Zechariah a little bit of discipline. Like a parent to a child, he gets put in time out. All right? He can't speak. And we know from later in the story, he also can't hear. He has to make signs to the people. And I always think this is kind of a funny moment. He's trying to explain what it was like to see an angel, and he can't even talk. I mean, the people had to think he just lost his mind. But just think about Zechariah's position for a second. Can't talk. Can't be talked to. Nothing. Silence all the time, alone with your thoughts, day after day. This is somewhat of a punishment. But it's actually bigger than that. We tend to think of discipline as being a bad thing. But the Bible actually says that God disciplines the one he loves. Discipline is a part of being a child of God. Sometimes we all need a little tough love. But ultimately, God's discipline is done for our good. It teaches us things we could never learn otherwise. It's working in our lives. And that's what we see here with Zechariah. God works through his time of silence to teach him. And man, I'm sure there were times when Zechariah thought, God, what are you doing? I bet he was frustrated and afraid. But this season, while Elizabeth was pregnant with their miracle child, and he's unable to speak or hear, this actually becomes the most important season of his life. How do we know that? Well, because of what happens next. At this point in your Bible, if you look, you'll see that Luke jumps. He follows Gabriel to his next announcement. He breaks in with Mary and the announcement of the birth of Jesus, and we're going to look at that next week. 
But why does, it, why does he do that? Why does he jump stories? Well, he wants us to draw a comparison between John and Jesus. They're cousins. They're related. They, they both play major roles in the story, and yet we're supposed to see they're different. We'll think more about that next week. This morning, let's continue focusing on Zechariah here. Look at Luke 1, 57 through 64. Jump down with me. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother had answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring when he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, Blessing God. In spite of Zechariah's doubt, God still worked. You know, God could have said, oh, okay, you're going to doubt me? I'll just give this gift to the next guy tomorrow. But he didn't. See, nothing stops the plan of God. The child is born. He's named John. Zechariah can speak again. And what does he say? He blesses the Lord. He overflows with all that God has been doing in his heart. And chapter 1 closes out with Zechariah's prophetic word. That's where I want to spend these last few minutes with you. And as we walk through it, I want to show you quickly three ways. Three ways that God conquers our doubts and teaches us to not be afraid. Here's the first. Number one. Number one, God conquers our doubts by keeping his promises. That's what we see in the first half of Zechariah's song. Look at verses 67 to 75. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Everything Zechariah says right here is steeped in the Old Testament. This is another reminder to us as Christians, do not neglect the Old Testament, folks. We cannot understand the New Testament apart from the Old, and we cannot appreciate the Old apart from the New. We need them both. In this period of silence, Zechariah was silent. In the centuries that God was silent to the people, he makes clear God was at work. And he revealed to Zechariah how he would fulfill everything he promised. Just, just look and see all the promises that Zechariah references. He references all the promises from the prophets that God would redeem his people. He references the promises to David that he would bring a horn of salvation from his house. He references the promises of the covenant that God would save them from their enemies. He references the promises that God made to Abraham. All these precious promises that God's people had trusted in for centuries. He says, these are now coming to fulfillment in your time. Despite the doubt and the waiting, God keeps his word. And knowing that is the first key to conquering doubt. 
All of us deal with doubt. We live in a fallen world. We're sinners. We suffer. We struggle. Unexpected things happen. Things don't go according to our plan. And so we doubt God's goodness. We doubt that God even exists or even cares or is even working at all. And at the heart of our doubt is this question. Did God really say? And that's a question we see in the beginning of the Bible. It actually originated from Satan. It's the question he asked Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan is the father of lies. He's the great cause of doubts. He wants us to doubt God's word so that we'll live in fear rather than faith. So in order to effectively deal with doubt, we have to go back to the source, to God's word, to his promises. And we have to ask that question for ourselves. Did God really say? And we have to learn to answer it. Yes, he did say and he will keep his word. So often what happens when we doubt is that we get fixated on our present circumstances. We look at the bad things happening to us and we get so focused on that that we forget all that God has done before. That's what happened with Zechariah. He and Elizabeth were facing a very difficult situation. They were likely looking around at all their friends and family members who were starting families and they no doubt prayed through tears for God to give them a child. So when Zechariah received the most surprising visit of his life, rather than looking back at all the things he knew of God, he focused on the impossibility of his present circumstances. And he said, how can this be? This was a man who had spent a lifetime walking with the Lord, serving as a priest. He taught people the promises of God's word himself. He likely had them all memorized. He knew them in his head, but the weight of life caused him to doubt them in his heart. My friend, if you haven't been there before, one day you likely will be. You will face a season of doubt. You will be tempted to despair and to forget God's past promises. And when that day comes, listen to me, what you've got to do is remind yourself of God's past faithfulness so that you can have present joy despite future unknowns. Look, we don't know what God will do tomorrow. We don't know how things will turn out. But we do know what he won't do, and that's break his promises. He won't break a single promise to you. He will not lie or change his mind or take it back. That would contradict his very character. He has sworn to you by his own nature, and that means for his promise to fail, he would have to fail, and God ain't doing that. Now, it doesn't mean he'll answer every prayer in the way you want. It doesn't mean he'll give you all your hopes and dreams. It doesn't mean all will go well. But it does mean he will never stop loving you. It does mean he will save you from your sin and take you into everlasting life through Jesus. It does mean he will work all things together for good in your life. It does mean that one day he will wipe every tear from your eye and redeem every heartache in eternity. When you doubt what God will do, simply look at what he has done. We have an entire Bible as a record of his faithfulness. We have an entire record of our lifetimes as of his faithfulness. Has God been faithful to you in the past? Are you sitting here breathing today? Hope so. (laughs) 
then he will be faithful to you again. God conquers our doubts by keeping his promises. Here's the second point we see. Number two, God conquers our doubts by giving us purpose. That's what we see in the second half of the song, last part, verses 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. At this point, Zechariah, he speaks prophetically to his son. You imagine that, this child he's waited his whole life for, he's holding him and looking at him, and he says, son, this is the calling you will have. He's going to be a prophet who will go before Jesus to prepare the way. He'll do that by showing people that salvation means being forgiven of your sins. Zechariah uses this this beautiful imagery of a sunrise bringing light on a dark world. So part of Zechariah turning from doubt to faith was realizing that his son had a divine purpose. God was going to bring salvation to the people through the ministry of John. But another part of conquering his doubt was realizing that he too had a divine purpose. Zechariah was going to raise John to be a man of God. And he was even now announcing the good news of what God would do. In fact, Zechariah is the first person to tell the world that salvation is here. Our purpose is exactly the same. It's to announce to the world God's salvation and his forgiveness of sins in Jesus And knowing our purpose is how God erases our doubts. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to forget why I'm here. I get caught up in all the bad things happening in the world, the stress of my life, the way I feel, and I worry. I become afraid. I get anxious. And I forget that my purpose above all else is to make disciples. No matter what happens, that doesn't change. No matter if World War III breaks out. No matter if I get cancer, lose my job, lose someone I love, no matter what, my purpose doesn't change. And knowing that, believing that is what erases my doubts because it gives me a reason to keep going. Gives me a reason to get up in the morning. I got a job to do, a mission to complete, and it's a mission given to me by God himself. God conquers our doubts by giving us purpose. Here's the third and last point. We'll be done. Number three. God conquers our doubts by sending Jesus. Though we've been learning about Zechariah and Elizabeth and their son John today, don't miss the real point. Their lives and their stories were all about Jesus. They existed to bring him glory and prepare his way. And God sovereignly inspired through the Holy Spirit a man named Luke to record these words. God had them written down for doubters like us that we might be reminded again God is always working and Jesus is the proof. To be totally honest with you, I still have times where I'm tempted to doubt. Listen, I I went to Bible college, seminary. I've been in ministry like a decade. I've seen lives changed. I've seen God work in my own life in ways I never thought he would. And yet, there are times that thought creeps in. Did God really say? Is this all really true? 
When I die, will there really be a heaven? Will I get to go there? How could someone like me be saved? I want you to know you're not alone in your doubts and your fears. But here's what I do when they come. I simply look to Jesus again. I remind myself of what I know to be true. That despite my feelings, Jesus lived, died, and rose again for me. That is historically and objectively true no matter what. But I also choose to trust it because I've seen how it's changed me. Like I still have some questions, some doubts, some struggles. But I know Jesus and I choose to look to him. I choose to rest in him. And I choose to obey his call to not be afraid. Would you bow with me in prayer?